Welcome to the weekly message from Rama Family Church. It is our hope that as you listen to this message, you will come to know Jesus better and be established in your faith and equipped for the work of the ministry. You can view the sermon notes and listen online at rama.org.au forward slash media. Hello to everybody at Rama Family Church. This is Tony Cook, and I am really excited to be back with you for the second session. I I loved the first session with you guys. I I don't know if it's because I've been there before. It's just I, I love Pastor Tony and Patsy so much, but I just felt like I was really there with you. I know I wasn't and physically, but um, and I would love to see your faces. But uh, but uh, under the circumstances, this is the next best thing to being there, and I'm I'm so thankful that I'm able to share with you this way. What I'm sharing with you is really heavily from my book called Miracles and the Supernatural Throughout Church History. I'm, of course, holding a physical copy, but you can get this on Amazon through Kindle. And uh, what, when I'm sharing about these different people, these individuals, for example, that we talked about last session, Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp and Irenaeus of Lyon, you know, we, we trace through pretty much all the centuries. Um, these are just, what I'm covering with you in this video is just a fragment, just a, a, a small uh, fraction of uh, what we actually cover in the book. There is just tons of historical evidence and information uh, that, that really support um, the, the things that I'm sharing with you. Uh, I opened up in the last session with kind of sharing my own personal experience, my own personal journey, and how I went from being kind of a nominal, traditional type of Christian, where pretty much everything was kind of intellectual. Uh, you know, Christianity to me was a moral proposition, uh, ethical, and all that's great, but there was just a dimension, kind of an experiential dimension that, um, you know, wasn't very real to me until at the age of 18, I had uh, what I believe was a very direct personal encounter with the Holy Spirit as uh, one who uh, healed my body, um, imparted a, a spiritual gift into my life. And I, I know just from my personal journey that that uh, that was really revolutionary for me. Now, one thing that we need to explain and make sure that we stress is having an experience or experiencing a healing or having a spiritual gift, uh, that does not make any of us superior to anyone else. Um, this is not a, a question of well, I've had this experience, so I'm better. You know, the truth of the matter is we are all, uh, when our faith is in Jesus Christ, uh, we are just all so privileged to be uh, born again, to be members of the family of God, to be children of God. And none of us, no matter what we experience or how God might happen to use us, none of us have a, a, a place or a reason to feel that we're better than anybody else. Uh, we all should just be very grateful and thankful that God loved us and that Jesus died for us. But we do want to be equipped by the Holy Spirit 
to be able to minister effectively to other people. And, and that's a big part of what these gifts of the Spirit are all about. They're not toys, but they're, they're tools. Um, and, and again, I'm not here to teach on all that. I'm, I'm really focusing on the historical standpoint. But I do want to look at um, a, a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, because there's kind of two uh, groups, if you will, or two terms because there are some people who believe that the gifts of the Spirit, the healings, the miracles, the miraculous, the uh, what we call, and some theologians have used this term, the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. There are some people who believe those are not for today. Uh, that there are some things that God did then that he'll do today, but there's this other category that he doesn't do. And the folks who believe, and there are some good people that love God, uh, that hold this view. I'm not adversarial, you know, I, I would disagree with their position, but many of them are wonderful Christians who love God. I just see things differently than they do. But there's a term that is used to describe them, and that is cessationist. And the word cessation comes from our English word to cease, which means to stop. In other words, they believe that the gifts of the Spirit ceased at some point in church history. And, um, and th so that's where the term cessationist comes from. I was a cessationist for the first 18 years of my life. And I, I consider, I, I, I probably would use the term, I was a soft cessationist because I wasn't um, telling anybody, you know, it was, to me, it was just an assumption. I had never seen anything miraculous. I had never experienced anything supernatural. I'd never seen anybody healed. I'd never heard anybody speak in tongues. So, and because I went to church for 18 years and never saw any of that, I just assumed that it was not for today. I read about it in the Bible, the book of Acts, and of course, Jesus' healings in the gospel, but I just assumed for some reason, I didn't know why, but that God didn't do that anymore. And so nobody had told me that that doesn't happen. Nobody had told me, for example, well, speaking in tongues is of the devil. I didn't have anything like that. I, to me, I just had an assumption. But then there's another category of people that I'm in today, and those are people who believe that the gifts of the Spirit, and basically that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Holy Spirit is the same in the church today. And, and the people who, believes that, who believe that these gifts are for today is called a continuationist. In other words, they believe that these things continue until the present day and hour. Now, that we don't believe that everybody experiences it, but we believe that people could experience it if they, you know, would there if they would believe, you know, what the Bible says, embrace it, and receive by faith. Uh, we believe that a lot of people could sure move in some spiritual things that maybe a lot of people didn't. You know, and I just say that from experience. For 18 years, you know, there were so many things I never experienced. 
Uh, and then after I got filled with the Spirit, then I began to experience those things. So I want us to look. There's really nowhere in the Bible you wouldn't read the New Testament and just come up on your own that these things are not for today. So, so why do some people believe these gifts are not for today? Well, I think a lot of it is because they've not seen it. They've not experienced it. But in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, Paul writes, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, I have partial knowledge, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So the Bible does teach that there's coming a day when tongues will cease. The perspective is just, when is that? You know, some people will say, well, that's already happened. My position would be that is yet to happen. I believe there will be a day in heaven when we don't need to speak in tongues anymore. I don't. When I get to heaven and you're in heaven, uh, I don't need to come up and give you a word of prophecy, um, you know, to comfort you, encourage you, things like that, because you aren't going to need that. Um, the Bible says that he that speaks in an unknown tongue uh, does not speak to God, uh, does not speak to man, but unto God that he edifies himself. Well, I'm not going to need that in heaven. Now, the key to this to me is what Paul says, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And many people, and understandably, uh, you know, they think, well, that must be the Bible. When the Bible has come, then we won't need these other things. But we have to look at this whole connection. In verse 12, at the end, he says, Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Well, just because we have the Bible, and thank God for the Bible, the fact that the Bible has come, we still know in part. We still prophesy in part. It's when we get to heaven that we're going to know even as we are fully known. So that's my argument on that. But let's pick up with some of the people that are very, very important. Uh, we ended, our last person was Irenaeus of Lyon, and we saw what he had said about you know miracles and healings and tongues and different things. Uh, all the way down into Alexandria, Egypt, there was an early church father named Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N. And he died in the middle of the third century, 253. And he made this statement. I love this. He said, the name of Jesus can still remove distractions 
from the minds of men, expel demons, and also take away diseases. Furthermore, it, the name of Jesus, produces a marvelous meekness of spirit and a complete change of character. So in the middle of the third century, uh, Origen, who was a great early church leader, was talking about the supernatural power that is in the name of Jesus Christ and the effect that was had when people believed in the power of that name. And Origen goes on to say, he said, we can clearly show a countless multitude of Greeks and barbarians who acknowledge the existence of Jesus. They're talking about the results of evangelism. And some give evidence of their having received through this faith a marvelous power by the cures which they perform, invoking no other name than those over those who need their help than that of the God of all things and of Jesus, along with a mention of his history. And Origen went on to say, For by these means I too have seen many persons freed from grievous calamities, from distractions of mind, madness, and countless other ills that could not be cured by either men or devils. And he went on to say, this is Origen, based in Alexandria, Egypt. He said, not a few cures. And when he says not a few, he means there were many, there were several. Not a few cures are brought about in the name of Jesus and certain other manifestations of no small significance have taken place. I love that. Now, early Christianity was centered around the Mediterranean. You had Europe to the north, you had Africa to the south, you had Asia uh, to the east. When we go back up into Europe in Rome, and again, toward the middle of the third century, there was a prominent elder in the church at Rome. And, and the church at Rome then was far different than what we see today with the Roman Catholic Church. You know, many of their traditions and all were layered on over centuries and centuries. The early Roman church was just like all the other early churches, you know, primitive practices and beliefs what we would call very organic, relational. It did not have all the hierarchy and all the titles and all the rituals and so on. Uh, but there was an elder in the church at Rome in the middle of the third century named Novation. And he was a, he was a leader in the early church at Rome, and he wrote a great work called Concerning the Trinity. And in his chapter on the Holy Spirit, I want you to listen to this very carefully. This is an elder, a minister, part of the pastoral team, we probably would say, uh, in the church at Rome toward the middle of the third century. And he says the following. He says, the Holy Spirit is the one who places prophets in the church, instructs teachers, directs tongues, so apparently something was happening with tongues in the church at Rome in the middle of the third century, gives powers and healings, 
does wonderful works, offers discerning of spirits, provides powers of government, gives counsels, he orders and arranges other gifts of the charismata. And that word charismata, that's where you get the word charismatic. Its, its, its root is grace and gifts of grace. He arranges other gifts of the charismata and makes the Lord's church everywhere perfect and complete. Now, we jump back. Let's go back to uh, France, modern-day France. Back then, it was called Gaul, G-A-U-L. And let's jump ahead a hundred years to the middle of the fourth century. And uh, there was a, a, a famous minister there, preacher named Hillary, H-I-L-A-R-Y. And he was from a city based in a city called Poitiers. If I'm getting the French right, I'm probably not. Hillary of Poitiers. And Hillary made this statement. He said, when the words of life are spoken, or when there is understanding of divine knowledge, when by faith we stand inside the gospel. And I love that because sometimes people get so, you know, people tend to get in one uh, extreme or the other. Either they don't want to have any supernatural gifts or they want everything to be focused on something spectacular and supernatural. And the truth of the matter is, there's all kinds of things. You know, there is intellect within the gospel. There is information. There is morals. There are ethics. There are, you know, instructions on how to live. But there's also the supernatural component. And um, Hillary says when we stand inside the gospel, when healings and miracles are performed, when by prophecy we are taught of God, when spirits holy or evil are discerned, when sermons, listen to this, when sermons in foreign languages are signs that the Holy Spirit is active, when interpretation makes intelligible the sermons in foreign languages. Now, this is Hillary in Gaul in the middle of the fourth century there were still occurrences. You remember at the very end of our last session, I talked about three different kinds of usages of tongues. Not all tongues are the same. There was a kind on the day of Pentecost where people actually heard sermons or heard God being glorified in their own language. And it was, they were words being spoken by people who didn't know those languages, but the hearers understood you have what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14, something that might happen in a church service where there is tongues and interpretation. And uh, I have heard in recent times, in modern times, missionaries going into places and they say something in their known language, but the person hears it in their own language, even though the speaker doesn't know that language. God can still do exceptional things today. But um, And then the third type is what Paul describes as that when you pray in an unknown tongue, you're not speaking unto men, but unto God. 
So there's a devotional, what we call a private prayer language. And so some people get kind of confused because they're trying to judge all tongues the same instead of realizing that the Bible really delineates and historical evidence really delineates different. And Paul even said in 1 Corinthians 12, there are different kinds of tongues. So we keep reading and from Hillary, and he said, clearly, these are the church's agents of ministry or tools of ministry and work of whom the body of Christ consists, and God has ordained them. How truly is the manifestation of the Spirit seen in, su- in the bestowal, the bestowing of such useful gifts? So if somebody doesn't want to believe in the gifts of the Spirit for today, I I love them. I still can respect their faith in Jesus Christ. I receive them as a brother, a sister in Christ. But the one thing we can't really do is say that the gifts of the Spirit stopped when the last apostle died because clearly they didn't. These people that I'm quoting are, they are legendary in the Christian church. They are not some obscure person that nobody ever heard of. These were the most uh, prolific, dynamic leaders of the early church in the early centuries. Another very powerful minister, in, uh, he was over in Asia, what today would be considered the nation of Turkey, and that was an early church leader named Basil. B-A-S-I-L, Basil of Caesarea. And he died in the year 379. So again, we're getting much further into the fourth century. Another fellow minister of his said that Basil, that his words were like thunder because his life was like lightning. Uh, They said that Basil had a better understanding of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit probably more than any other early church father. And um, Basil said this, he said, and when the stream of doctrine is gushing forth in the church. Now, I love that because more than anything, I'm a teacher. And teachers, they tend to be very systematic, point upon point, line upon line. Uh, teachers are your more logical, rational type people. They're not, they're not so much like the prophetic that might kind of flow here, there, and everywhere. Um, and some people think that teaching has to be boring. Uh, but the truth of the matter is any spiritual gift um, that operates under the anointing of the Holy Spirit should be very life-giving. Uh, There's nothing dry or mundane or boring about the Holy Spirit. And Basil said, when the stream of doctrine, well, the word doctrine just means teaching. When the stream of doctrine is gushing forth in the church and a devout heart is welling up with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, Do you not gladly give your attention? Do you not receive this favor? And favor is another word for grace. Do you not receive this grace, this gift of God with thanksgiving? 
And so Basil was big on the gifts of the Spirit. He said, this is another quote by him, he said, the Spirit is ever-present, meaning He's with us now. He's, He's always with us. And He works as the need requires in prophecies or in healings or in some other actual carrying into effect of His potential action. Here's the thing. The Holy Spirit was sent on the day of Pentecost. He filled the church with power on the day of Pentecost. Now, one of the things we have to look at is the the fact that God sent the Holy Spirit, does that mean that people always cooperate with the Holy Spirit? There's something about human nature that tends to want to have control And we want to do things our way instead of God's way. And so the church has notoriously um, many times kind of shut the Holy Spirit out and we go with our plans and our programs and our agenda and the way we think things should be done. And you end up almost like with the Laodicean situation where Jesus is standing outside the church He's knocking on the door of the church saying, would you let me in? How many churches have shut Jesus out? How many churches have shut the Holy Spirit out? Because just human nature wants to do things our way. We prefer our rituals, our formalism, our intellectualism, instead of really allowing the Holy Spirit to Uh, impact our lives the way He wants to, and then being able to do ministry the way He would empower us to do it. We're going to jump over now into the 5th century, and I know based on our time, we don't have time to cover every single century, but we're going way beyond the apostles here. You may not have heard of any of the people I've mentioned so far, but I bet you will have heard of this one, Augustine. And there were a couple of different Augustines in church history, but the one I'm referring to now is the really, really famous one. And uh, sometimes you'll hear him called Augustine of Hippo. And Hippo was, I know that's a funny name, but it was actually a city in northern Africa, just like Origen and Tertullian and some of the other early church fathers. There was a strong Christian movement across the northern part of Africa in the early centuries. And Augustine is probably considered to be the greatest theologian after the Apostle Paul. He is loved by Catholics. He is loved by Protestants. Um, You don't necessarily agree with everything he says, but he was a brilliant guy. He was a smart guy. And um, he made the statement. Now, what's interesting about Augustine is that early in his ministry, He spent time up in, and Tony and Patsy will know this, he spent time up in Milan. And I'm sure they've been to the Dome of Milan, the Domo. And um, most people don't know, when they go into the Dome of Milan, there's some back stairs um, that go down to the ancient church. And you can go down, it's, it's very, you can tell it's very, very primitive. And you can actually go down to the baptistry where Augustine got baptized. Um, But anyway, Augustine, uh, in his early years, uh, first of all, before he got born again, he was a real scoundrel. He was very 
wild and promiscuous in his life. And when he started to come to God and was in his early walk with the Lord, he said, Lord, make me holy, but not yet. He, he really liked his old sinful lifestyle, his flesh, you know, and he didn't want to give that up. But eventually he got really sanctified, consecrated to God and that type of thing. And in his early years, he did not really believe in miracles, although he did say, well, you know, he, he said later, he said, well, I did see a blind guy get healed in Milan, you know, as the result of faith and prayer, but I just kind of discounted it. But, but when he went back to Northern Africa, uh, and served as a bishop there. Uh, here, here are some of the statements he made. He said, even now, therefore, and remember, this is in the, uh, uh, into the fifth century after Christ. He said, even now, therefore, many miracles are worked. The same God who worked those we read of, and I think he meant we read of in the Bible, he is still performing them by whom he will and as he will. I cannot record all the miracles I know. Now, let me just interject this here. He, this is a book that you can read this in, in his classic work called The City of God. And he was reflecting on how that Rome was in great, great decline. Um, but he was saying even when the earthly empires fade and fall, that God has a city. And... Uh, and he in, in this book, The City of God, where he says many miracles are worked, uh, I cannot record all the miracles I know. When you read this book that he wrote, he went on to list 70, 70. So he listed a whole bunch of miracles, things that he saw where people in his church and, and people in his uh, sphere of influence experience miracles by the power of God. And he goes on to say this, and doubtless several of our adherents, meaning several of our church members, when they read what I have narrated, meaning when they read the 70 miracles, he said, they will regret that I have omitted so many, which they as well as I certainly know. Even now, I beg these persons to excuse me and to consider how long it would take me to relate all those miracles which the necessity of finishing the work I have undertaken forces me to omit. Did you catch what Augustine was saying? He, he said, I've, I've recorded 70 miracles but I can't record all of the ones I know about. And I know that my church members, when they see what I've written and what I didn't include, some of them are going to be upset because I did not include their miracles in my list in this book. But he said, I want you to forgive me because he said, if I wrote all the miracles I know about, I could never finish this book. That to me is pretty amazing. We jump into the 7th century, into the very beginning of the 7th century, and there was a, a pope named Gregory. And again, the Roman church wasn't everything that it is today then, and Gregory happened to be a very evangelistic pope. As a matter of fact, John Calvin in the Protestant Reformation uh, close to a thousand years later said he, he was really the last pope 
that uh, John Calvin really appreciated. So, uh, but John uh, uh, Gregory, and he's called Gregory the Great, said, I, your unworthy servant, know how many soldiers who have become monks in my own days, and that was forbidden back then. If you were a soldier and had taken life, you weren't allowed to be, you know, some of the church rules and all that. But he says, hey, I know a bunch of soldiers that have become monks and in my day, and, and they have done miracles. They have wrought signs and mighty deeds. And, and Gregory went on to say, now generally... We see holy men do wonderful things, perform many miracles, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, dispel bodily sicknesses by touch, and predict things to come by the spirit of prophecy. So again, touching into the uh, 7th century, uh, Gregory the Great is still talking about miracles and healings and signs and wonders and things of that nature. Uh, I don't know if in Australia there's much of a, a group. In America, we call them Quakers. They started in England, came to America. I don't know how widespread they are, but they're also called the Society of Friends. And... Um, they were founded by an evangelist, a preacher by the name of George Fox. Now, I'm jumping way forward in church history for time's sake. But George Fox was a preacher in England who also, I believe, came to America for a bit. But he was talking about his meetings. He passed away in 1691. So we're into the 17th century here. And George Fox says about his meetings, he said, the Lord's power broke forth, and I had great openings and prophecies, and spoke unto them of the things of God, which they heard with attention and silence, and they went away and spread the fame thereof. And he says, many great and wonderful things were wrought or produced uh, by the heavenly power in those days. For the Lord made bare his omnipotent arm and manifested his power to the astonishment of many by the healing virtue whereby many have been delivered from great infirmities and the devils were made subject through his name. A lot of supernatural happenings were, were happening in those early days of the Quaker or the Friends movement. One of uh, George Fox's fellow evangelists described the meetings in these words, an evangelist named Edward Burroughs. He said, we received often the pouring down of the Spirit upon us and the gift of God's holy eternal Spirit as in the days of old. And our hearts were made glad and our tongues loosed, and our mouths opened, and we spoke with new tongues as the Lord gave us utterance. And as His Spirit led us, which was poured down upon us on sons and daughters. Uh, I wish I had much more time to go through these things. That's why I hope you'll grab this book. But let me, in, in the early uh, actually, 1727, now we're into the 18th century, 
there was a group of people in far eastern Germany under the leadership of a guy named Nicholas von Zinzendorf. And in the year 1727, they had what they called a Moravian Pentecost. They had a period of waiting on God, and they had an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and all kinds of different supernatural things were happening. People were getting healed and different things. Well, they ended up in what was called the 100-year prayer meeting. Uh, they started to pray around the clock, and, and they weren't a really large group, so they just had to divide up, and people took different time slots, but they started praying 24 hours a day, and that prayer meeting went on for a little more than a 100 years, and out of that Moravian Pentecost and out of that Moravian outpouring and prayer meeting, uh, they launched more missionaries I, I can't remember how many hundreds of missionaries they sent out, and it was absolutely amazing what happened. One of the people that they heavily impacted was John Wesley. Now, everybody, I think, has heard of John Wesley. He's the founder of what we call today Methodism, the, the Methodist Church. And boy, it's changed a lot. Uh, you know, over time, there's always this tendency that something that starts in revival and outpouring over time, people will, and, and please understand, I love the Methodists. I, I married a Methodist girl. I've been married to her for 42 years now. Um, I got saved at a, spirit, or at a um, uh, Methodist youth camp. Uh, that was not the church I was raised in, but I went when I was 14 years old and had an encounter with the Lord. When I got spirit-filled and healed at the age of 18, that was also at a Methodist church. I was married in a Methodist church. So uh, please, I'm not against the Methodist, but, but many people of pretty much all denominations, if they're around long enough, they're going to be people that get away from their foundation. They get away from their founding disciplines and doctrines and experiences. And the next thing you know, uh, there's extreme liberalism theologically. And by that, I mean they no longer believe the Bible to be the Word of God. Um, they no longer look to the Bible as authoritative. They no longer accept the, the major teachings of the Bible that, for example, we've all sinned, we all need forgiveness, Forgiveness is available only through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Um, you know, all those things that are so essential. And John Wesley was raised uh, Anglican, Church of England. And um, he was very religious, but he didn't have a, an assurance in his heart of salvation. Even though he was educated at Oxford, the son of an Anglican priest, and probably more religious than any five people in your room right now combined. He was so religious. He was so disciplined, but he was really trying to earn his salvation by his good works. And he, he never had the comfort and the peace and the assurance. And he interacted with Moravian missionaries. And um, it's a long story. I won't go into it, but the long story, here's what happened. He went to one of their meetings, and remember, he's a minister. He's a preacher. 
but he's struggling because he's not 100% confident that he didn't know if he were to die that he would go to heaven. He didn't know if he'd done enough good works. And he says at about three in the morning, this is John Wesley, at about three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy and many fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of His Majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge Thee to be the Lord. And so I'm going to need to stop because we're almost out of time. But I just want to say to you that I have found in my, I'm 62 years old, I have found that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Holy Spirit that was moving and operating in the book of Acts, He is the same Holy Spirit that we have today. And my belief is simply this, that whatever he has ever done, he's willing to do today. And what he needs are people who are willing to surrender to him totally and open up their hearts to receive everything that he has, not just simply for our benefit, but so that these can become tools. He wants to transform us by the power of his spirit so that he can make us into effective servants and effective laborers for Him. He wants us to be filled with the Spirit so that we can have an overflow of the Spirit. I hope this has been helpful. It has been such a joy to be with you. I've gotten kind of excited sharing these things with you. I I wish I could be there to see your faces, uh, but I know you, you've got a great church there. Pastor Tony and Patsy are wonderful. You're very blessed to have them in leadership there. Uh, I love you. God bless you. And I pray you have a wonderful, wonderful day. If you would like more information or resources on this or other topics, or if you would like to sow into this ministry financially to help us share messages just like this one each week, please visit our website at brainer.org.au. 